Hello and welcome to The Thought Leader's Voice. I'm Rachel Kinsella, Editorial and Content Director at iResearch Services and your host for today's podcast episode. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Cindy Anderson, Global Lead for Engagement and Eminence at the IBM Institute for Business Value. We'll be talking about the power of thought leadership for cultural and commercial growth, women in leadership and other pressing issues in the world of thought leadership that we simply can't ignore, such as generative AI. Cindy has been the lead marketing officer for the Institute for almost four years, overseeing editorial, design and user engagement. She spent seven years as chief marketing and brand officer for the Project Management Institute before that, developing a thought leadership competency for the organisation, founding a strategy coalition and regularly contributing as an expert author and speaker. Cindy has really seen the power of thought leadership play out across a number of sectors, Having served as senior marketing and communications executive in such diverse industries as healthcare, food manufacturing, medical devices, and philanthropic organizations. Thank you very much for being with us today, Cindy. It's really great to have you here. Rachel, it's my pleasure. Well, there's so many hot topics when it comes to thought leadership, evolving B2B marketing right now. I'd really love to talk to you about them all, so perhaps we can continue our conversations over time on various different topics. But I'd really like to start today by discussing an exciting new development from the Institute for Business Value in collaboration with Chief that highlights to me, certainly, the importance of thought leadership in furthering diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives, particularly around women in leadership. The recent published report on women in leadership shines a spotlight on how perception doesn't exactly match up with reality. We find that thought leadership is a vital tool in highlighting perception gaps like this and therefore putting organisations in that informed position to be able to communicate and effect change. So what's your take on the role of thought leadership in improving equity and inclusion? I realise that's uh, quite a broad question. It is, but it's a great one. So it's a good place to start. So we like to think of thought leadership as distinctive and evidence-based intelligence that gives leaders the insights they need to make smarter business decisions. So With that as the lens, when our research tells us something that we didn't know before, it can be immensely valuable, especially in areas like diversity and and equity and inclusion that we're talking about. So in fact, just as we were publishing this study, the Financial Times wrote a long article about the awareness of gender inequity, because we've all heard the stories about during COVID when in the US, the great resignation and the outsized impact that COVID and the pandemic increased responsibilities we're having on women. But as our study shows, uh, the one that you mentioned, the Women in Leadership study from the IBM Institute for Business Value, awareness without action is really useless. So that's why, from our perspective, that smarter business decisions, the insights that leaders need, really has to include what we also call action leadership. So we take the perspective that thought leadership has to be paired with action leadership. It's not enough just to have that point of view, that kind of unique insight, but that insight really has to lead to something different, a different decision, the ability to make a different decision for thought leadership to have an impact. And that's especially important, Rachel, I think, in areas like equity and inclusion, more so, I think, even than some of the business and technical areas that we both work in. Absolutely. It's not enough just to have an opinion or to even to be able to showcase particular insights to generate awareness, because 
that's all rumbling on in the background. There's numerous other issues that are coming to light and people are being bombarded with in terms of the news agenda. So actually taking action and having something to say and following it up with actions is increasingly important and vital when it comes to thought leadership and what it can help you achieve as an organization. Yeah. And it's, and I, I, it, sorry, Rachel, I think that's our role too, as thought leaders yeah. and as experts in our field and our practice. Awareness is important, don't get me wrong. But again, as you were saying, and as the study points out, without action or without the ability and the rationale and the reason, the business reason to make a different decision, it's just interesting information, right? We don't think of it as as real thought leadership if it doesn't prompt action and change. Yeah, that's a really important distinction. And also that it's not just falling to particular individuals within the organization to be spokespeople or a mouthpiece on particular issues, but actually the organization as a whole and leadership as a whole are taking action that's been informed by the insight provided. And I think you make a a really important distinction in that report that gender equity is not a women's issue, it's an organisational one. And therefore, various different stakeholders internally and externally need to be involved in making change happen. So how do you feel that thought leadership can really work across the different areas of an organisation to be able to build on insight and build on those existing efforts to make that change happen? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we've talked a little bit already about thought leadership plus action leadership. And in order to help business leaders and the organization at a whole, in particular, and when we focus primarily on business leaders in the C-suite, those actions are really designed to prompt a specific activity at the CEO level and almost to the point where we could say to the CEO, listen, take a look at your CHRO, take a look at your chief operating officer and ask them to do this about that. And so one of the important things in this study is that our data shows that gender equity isn't just the right thing to do, it's a really smart business decision. And the way that we do that is we identify leading organizations in the study, those who do three things that other organizations don't. And I'll just highlight those quickly. First, they treat the advancement of women like any other business priority. It has formal goals, it has plans for achievement. Second is they view gender inclusivity as a driver of financial performance. And then the third thing is they believe that businesses have the obligation to continue to making changes if they're to achieve gender parity. They're not waiting for government regulations or outside influences to do that. And what we find is when we look at a subset of those organizations in the study, we call them first movers, they have a 19% higher revenue growth rate than other organizations. They have better overall diversity and they have higher employee retention than their competitors. And as a leader, once I know that there's that 19% revenue growth premium, how can I in good conscience leave that kind of growth on the table by not addressing it as a business issue, right? So what our report does is it offers four concrete actions that leaders can take to improve parity. The first one is really designing roles at the top that work for top talent. And what that means is breaking the mold on historically defined roles. When's the last time, for example, any of the organizations that we've worked for have redefined the criteria for an executive role? Normally, you see like 15 to 20 areas of responsibility when really five or six things are the most important. 
And you want to make sure that those are really gender neutral requirements. Obviously, ending the pay gap there is an important action that can be taken. The second thing is changing the dialogue around gender. I mentioned that 19% higher revenue growth. If we start talking about gender parity and equity and diversity in the language of business results, and we show that equality for women isn't a zero-sum game, it doesn't mean women gain and men lose, but it's really a benefit for the organization as a whole. And we engage men in the solutioning to this. Um, One of our co-authors of the study, one of the leaders, a man in our organization, said, you know, if 88% of the people that have to help solve this problem, and that number comes from the fact that 12% of people in the C-suite are women, if 88% of the people who have to help solve this problem are men, how can we solve it without them, right? So we need to engage men in those conversations. And then the last two things are really just giving your strategy teeth by setting specific goals, scouting and sponsoring up and coming uh, women leaders to make sure that they stay in those pipelines and kind of detangling that messy middle. We find that middle of the leadership pipeline for women is where it really hollows out and women drop out of that pipeline. And we need to really ask women what they need to stay. And when we did that, one of the things that we heard was very loudly and clearly was that the roles at the top need to be redefined. They just don't work for women. They're not inspiring. They're not challenging. And they're just not reasonable for the lives that women are leading these days. So long answer there, Rachel, but a lot of action, I think, is the most important thing and across the organization. So it's not just here's what women can do, right? It's here's what the organization as a whole needs to do to take responsibility and accountability and consider women's advancement of business priority. That's brilliant. I think a long but very helpful answer. And yes, it's a lot of actions required, but they're defined actions. Right. And what you're essentially providing is a business case. That's exactly right. To be more successful and looking at it through that commercial lens. And that's what makes it so important. And that's what can make thought leadership more relevant and compelling and a driver of action. Because you can quote statistics until they come out of your ears, but unless they're they're actually pointing to something that needs to be changed or action that needs to be taken, that they're not going to have any impact. And it's also defined those key areas that need to be reassessed and addressed, particularly, as you say, the pay gap, but also that messy middle, that drop-off point that seems to happen, particularly in certain industries. I was involved in a panel at the On Risk conference about a month ago, where we were talking about professional services and financial services in particular where that women in leadership point and the opportunities just seem to drop off a cliff. And your report does talk about that in depth. And so by defining the actions that need to be taken and looking at it from both a commercial and a practical perspective, that's going to be driving action. And I think that's what's really important. Right. And showing the outcomes that can be achieved by those actions as well, by organizations that have done it. So it kind of gives you the playbook with the potential outcome sitting there right in front of you. So it's almost like a challenge, right? It's like, well, you you too could be achieving these results. What are you waiting for, right? Yeah, that's always going to get everyone's competitive spirit up, isn't it? And that's right. By showing those benchmarks of success and highlighting the front runners, everyone's want, going to want to emulate them. So that's another very clever and commercially sort of agile way of doing it. 
I think with the, I mean, this is a fascinating topic. and I'd love to delve into that in more detail and perhaps another conversation. But I think it's really highlighting the importance of informed insight and shaping thought leadership activity in a way that's going to resonate with the C-suite, that's going to resonate with senior audiences and is actually going to, to drive action. And a lot of that is about trust. And also you're being very transparent in setting those benchmarks by highlighting those firms that are successful, that are doing it well, you know, as a careful nudge to those who are perhaps lagging behind to to be able to take action themselves. So it kind of comes into you're highlighting these perception gap, you're highlighting the division between those who are doing it well and those who aren't doing it so well, but in a professional way. And you're also kind of bringing transparency through the insight, through the framework that you're recommending. Perception gaps obviously lead to misinformation and a lack of trust. And there's a lot of data that we've been researching recently that thought leadership is definitely more powerful and better engaged with if it's from a trusted source, if it's got compelling and quality data behind it as well as coming up with these practical solutions and frameworks and ways of being able to drive action. How do you think that thought leadership can be used as a tool to help improve trust and transparency, not just between external and internal stakeholders, so improving customer trust, but also sort of internally across different areas of an organisation, de-siloing those conversations, those different teams, the different activity that's going on? Well, I think thought leadership and trust are inextricably intertwined. So absolutely, they're kind of two sides of the same coin or, you know, they're both on the same side of a coin, in fact, I think. But thought leadership is just a powerful tool for business. And I think you all have done some research and we've done quite a bit of research as well on the benefit and the impact of thought leadership. And I guess I'd start the trust conversation just reflecting on some of the research that we've done recently with 3,700 global C-suite executives on kind of how they use thought leadership and the value that they see from it. And just a couple of stats, I think, to set us off, 96% of those leaders, so essentially everyone, I don't really know what the other 4% were thinking, but (laughs) say that they make better business decisions as a result of consuming thought leadership. And 93% say that their use of thought leadership drives competitive advantage. So That's really kind of gratifying, right? For those of us who produce that leadership because executives do see it as valuable. One of my favorite statistics from that study is 85% of C-suite leaders globally rises to 87% in the US, but they say they've made a specific purchase decision as a direct consequence of consuming thought leadership within the last 90 days. And that's really powerful. That's That's the power of thought leadership, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So we're doing really good things for business leaders. They need the material that we're producing. And in fact, one of our other stats was how important thought leadership is to fill the gap in a business leader's own organization because they just don't have the data and insights that they need. That's not a skill or a capability that they have in-house. But as far as trust, we asked quite a lot about that as well. And there's kind of a triumvirate of capabilities that leaders tell us that they use to evaluate the trustworthiness and the authority and credibility of thought leadership. And those three things are original proprietary data so that, you know, kind of the stats that we're talking about are really important. We have to have something to back up the point of view. And then the analysis, 
that comes with that data, you know, given the current business environment. So the data plus the analysis, and then that expert insight, right? And those three things, I think, in combination are what our survey showed are really the secret sauce for the best thought leadership. And when leaders trust the producers of the content, they tell us they purchase more. And it's something like 110% more. So again, to the point I made earlier, if I know that as a producer of thought leadership, how can I not try to build more trust and more credibility through the work that I do, get my work out to more executives because it's immensely valuable to them. (laughs) The more trusted I am, the more benefit my organization has achieves and the better that I can present my organization to my clients and my prospects. So over time, I think those three things, the proprietary data, the quantitative analysis, and then the expert insight are really the things that kind of wrap that thought leadership in a bow. And then you pair that with the action steps that we were talking about earlier, and that just drives more and more and more trust. And you do that over time, and that's what builds the credibility and the trust and the authority in the thought leadership. And I think you know, you talked about building trust and transparency internally as well as externally. I think that it becomes like a ripple, like a pebble in the water. So if your clients trust you, your employees trust you. If your employees trust you, your clients trust you. And it's all based on the credible business insights that you're developing through your research and your analysis and your point of view. So I I would say, you know, that's kind of how I think about thought leadership and trust is those three things tied up with a bow of action leadership. And it's kind of a formula that you can't miss with. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you look at it from the perspective that thought leadership is, it is helping customers to make their buying decisions. And your study and, and our study have backed that up with really significant figures in terms of the power that thought leadership has in actually driving and influencing those decisions coming from those who engage with it directly. But if you look at it from that lens internally, it's helping internal colleagues to make important business and strategic decisions as well. As you say, it's kind of plugging those knowledge gaps across the organization. It's helping to de-silo the different teams and the different work streams, as I mentioned. So it's a powerful tool internally as well to be able to provide the data and the insight to back up those strategic decisions. And I think the other thing that we don't often think a lot about is, you know, when those of us who have marketing backgrounds think of kind of internal engagement and external engagement, we think of things like social media as how we engage with our clients and prospects and influencers and all. But I think it has a really important impact on our employees and our staff as well, because when they see the thought leadership that's getting commented on or that's getting shared or that's getting quoted by news outlets or shared by clients or commented on by prospects or other influencers, that makes them feel really confident in the organization that they're working with as well. So it's one of those kind of unseen, but really important outcomes of having very credible, very trustworthy, very influential thought leadership that's targeted toward a client or an external target audience, but it actually impacts our internal audiences as well. And I think we forget that a lot. Yeah. And it's increasingly important, as you say, building credibility and trust internally, having that confidence in the organization, in the products and services offered and how they're able to offer that and work with clients. is something that quite often gets forgotten in the rush to get things to market. 
increasingly it's becoming important and what we're finding when we're doing a deep dive into thought leadership and how it can be used across different sectors we're finding some sectors more than others are actually really turning to social media and other internal engagement tools to share thought leadership to drive that commenting and sharing to build knowledge internally but also to build that trust and almost act as advocates and influencers internally to be able to take that out externally it seems to be working very well in financial services in particular. Right. Yeah, it's, it's really important, I think. So where are you seeing companies doing this well? And what sort of trends are you seeing in terms of thought leadership communications, bearing in mind the need for action-led insight and what we've been discussing in terms of the quality data that's backing up the thought leadership programmes? Where do you think companies are really excelling and where do you think they're falling short? And have you been able to pinpoint particular areas? Yeah, great question. I think one of the things that we see sort of scanning the thought leadership market and other practices is there's a lot of what we would call thought followership out there. I think because the cost of entry to become a thought leader, and I say thought leader with a fair amount of tongue in cheek, is really low, right? Anybody can post an article on LinkedIn or, you know, send something to Medium or whatever, and they call themselves an expert. And they tend to think that a point of view is enough. But as I mentioned just a moment ago, our research shows that having a point of view and an expert opinion is important, but you really should be an expert. And you really need to have data and analysis to back that up. Otherwise, it starts to ring hollow pretty quickly. And I know we're going to talk about this a little later, but I think generative AI is really going to give those of us in the thought leadership space a run for our money. The expectation of how much time it takes to produce a piece of thought leadership has shortened, I would say, exponentially over the last six months. And it's going to continue to get shorter and shorter as we figure out how to integrate generative AI tools and capabilities, not only into our content development, but very pertinent to both you and me, our research effort. We're also starting to hear about organizations that are using synthetic sampling for research. And for the listeners who haven't heard that yet, basically that's querying an AI that's been trained to see kind of patterns and relationships that are based on real data that it's been trained on, which of course is going to be a huge amount faster than fielding on a unique panel of 300 CEOs from organizations with revenue over 20 billion in six countries, right? That's going to take time. But if you're querying an AI, and eventually the, the training for those kinds of tools is going to get pretty good and is going to give us pretty decent insight. We're not there yet, but we're starting to see it. And it's going to be really important for all of us who are thought leadership producing organizations to kind of double down on our unique value propositions, whether we think it's original data, whether we think it's, you know, our ability to create unique content or it's our expertise. And we'll have to figure out how to use generative AI to enhance it. Otherwise, we risk really quickly all sounding the same, eroding that trust that we talked about just a minute ago, and really dissipating the immense value that thought leadership has for business leaders. So I think that's one of the things that we're seeing in We'll talk about it, as I said, again in a minute, but I think every organization that I've spoken to in the last three to four to five months about what they're doing is really struggling with or challenged to figure out what to do with generative AI. 
Yeah, I think depending on whether you're a glass half full or glass half empty, it could be seen as a significant threat, but also a massive opportunity for speeding up processes for complementing the research process through analysing data, being able to truncate timelines in terms of getting the points of view from senior audiences. But it's knowing enough about it to embrace it and to find ways to implement it as well. And everyone's talking about AI that talking about it from different perspectives. There's pluses and minuses on all sides, but it's certainly causing a lot of sleepless nights across the C-suite and across CMOs and thought leadership producers, as you say. So as it develops and as it gets better and as the uh, we can see the opportunity to use it as a as a tool, it would be very interesting to see how that's rolled out across different types of organisation and uh, and different producers of thought leadership. But I think you made a really important point there where everyone's going to have to look at their value proposition and really sing from the rooftops about what makes them different and unique, whether that's in-depth sector expertise, whether it's particular subject matter knowledge, whether it's ways of interpreting the the data or, or telling the stories so that everybody isn't just pumping out the same stuff. Something that is having to feature in strategic planning now with one eye on how the technology is going to develop and how it can be used. So that there's quite a lot of anticipating how it can be used as well, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. We have done a fair amount of research already on generative AI with executives and using AI and thought leadership. And is, is it okay if I share some of that, Rachel? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd be delighted to hear. Awesome. This isn't going to be a surprise to anybody, but executives tell us that their organizations are already seeing immense productivity gains, right? When they use generative AI, customer service data is coming in that there's 30% productivity gains just about overnight by implementing some of the generative AI uh, capabilities. But much of that is really related to how quickly information can be accessed and synthesized with these AI tools. So 56% of executives in one of our surveys recently said, that they expect generative AI to improve the quality of their content, 56%. So that's sort of like a a blow (laughs) to those of us who uh, generate content. It's kind of depressing when you think that 56% of the executives think that generative AI is going to improve the content that the people in their organizations already produce. And it might be why 27% of executives say that they expect that some of the roles in marketing are going to be completely replaced, 27%, by generative AI this year. And the remaining marketing roles, they expect to be enhanced or augmented by AI. So there's really no escaping generative AI for those of us who produce content. And by the way, marketing is the organization that executives say is going to see the biggest impact the soonest. So again, that you mentioned, you know, kind of, we have to keep an eye on it. We really have to keep an eye on it because it's going to impact us and our colleagues faster and quicker and more deeply than other parts of the organization. I'm sure it's starting already. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Some of the other research that we conducted is about thought leadership in particular And 47% of executives said that they think generative AI 
should be used specifically, should be used in the creation of thought leadership. And 54%, going back to trust, say they'll trust thought leadership more if it's produced using generative AI. So it feels to me like there's a crisis of confidence in the content development capability within organizations. So that's an opportunity, I think, for all of us who are content producers to our point about what's your unique value proposition. We need to get better at content, I think, is what we're hearing from executives. 78% of executives in that same study said that that original proprietary research contributes to the trustworthiness of thought leadership. And 24% say they'll trust that data less if generative AI is used in the collection of it. And one more data point, 58% of executives say they're more likely to make a purchase based on thought leadership when it is created solely by generative AI, not even as an input tool, but just prompt output content. They're saying they're more likely to purchase. Now, What I take away from some of these data that are pretty disparate in some ways, as I said, um, depressing, is we really just don't know yet what the impact is going to be with executives on producing thought leadership, on their consumption of thought leadership. But we know it's going to be an important shift. Whatever way it goes, there's already early evidence that Number one, there's opportunity. And number two, there's risk. So um, I know you all are going to keep an eye on it. We'll keep an eye on it. But it's definitely something that that people need to go into ready to explore and learn more about. Yeah, absolutely. And see where the fit is across the organization. Because as some of those data points show, there's it probably reflects a growing feeling that there's too much content out there and it's not differentiated enough and it's not necessarily trustworthy and it's not necessarily telling you anything new. So it probably ties in with that alongside great excitement about the capabilities of generative AI and the productivity gains. And the speed, honestly. Yeah, the speed. Yeah. It takes a long time to write a good piece of thought leadership when you're a human. Exactly. It takes a lot of time and thought. When you're an AI, you can do it pretty quickly. Yeah. So on the one hand, that's a massive opportunity because it can help speed up processes. It can help speed up timeline in terms of creating thought leadership, getting it ready to and getting it out to market. But then in terms of quality and differentiation, again, that's where some of the risks come in. So assessing it from all sides is so important rather than than getting carried away. And I think those sorts of conversations are leading to concerns, particularly across marketing teams about roles being replaced or particular functions being replaced. So it's definitely got to feature in the overall business strategy. It's got to feature heavily and again, keeping a close eye on the implications, both positive and negative. So it'd be very interesting to see how things play out there. And it's also interesting looking at it through the lens of increasing investment in thought leadership, which we're we're seeing across different industries. So will that investment be sort of all put in the tech bucket and allocated to AI and how it can be used? Or will it be evenly split across the teams involved in producing that content or doing that kind of marketing activity? And I think that some of the big questions that will be coming up and executives are having in their conversations now. Yeah, absolutely. And even in terms of, will some of that investment be used to outsource and will that benefit some of the agencies that are out there to the detriment of in-house marketing and thought leadership producing organizations as well? So that's something to watch from an investment perspective. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that could see completely different distribution model across the marketplace if that starts to happen. I also wonder whether there's an element of one of the, the findings from our most recent report looking at thought leadership was the struggle that financial services firms in particular are having is coming up with topics for thought leadership. And I wonder if there's an element of that being able to use AI to come up with topics in the first place and sense check those about whether they're of interest to the target audiences or, or relevant and to be able to do that very quickly, whether that's a key element that, that's helping sort of drive that usage of AI and that opportunity. Could very well be. And I think that goes back to looking strategically at the purpose of thought leadership in an organization. My initial thought would be if an organization is struggling to come up with topics, then they probably don't have the expert insight to apply to a topic that they would generate through AI, which again goes to the erosion of trust and so forth. So again, I just think it's going to be a fantastically interesting time in our field because there's so much opportunity if we can figure out how to manage the risk. And honestly, if we can make sure that we don't get paralyzed by fear, right, of becoming irrelevant or of being replaced or whatever, I think we have to just really embrace the technology. One of the things I tell people as a key takeaway is you really have to embrace the technology and figure out how to make you better at what you do, because it's not going away. Yes, exactly. So how can it be used for the most benefit for the individuals who are going to be producing these materials, who are going to be working on these projects? How can it make your life easier and embrace that and look at it strategically? As you say, if you're not clear on topics and what and why you're producing thought leadership in the first place, then you need to go back to the drawing board and have a good long, hard look at why you're doing it in the first place. And then it kind of comes full circle as have you got the in-depth expertise in, in the areas that you need? Have you got anything that actually stands you out from the crowd? And if you don't, then you need to follow another direction. But yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. I think there are so many opportunities there and so many ways that AI can be used to increase productivity, shorten lead times, support different colleagues across the organisation, but doing it in a measured and strategic way rather than just jumping on the bandwagon or just using something because it's the in thing. Actually thinking about the implications and thinking about the implications for all involved as well. So it's going to be really, really interesting to keep a close eye on how that's impacting thought leadership in particular. Absolutely, it will be. So we talked a little bit about investment and some interesting trends that we're seeing in terms of organisations investing more in their thought leadership, whether that's outsourcing whether it's building up the expertise within their particular teams, whether that's producing more thought leadership. And you've done some really groundbreaking work on how you can prove your commercial returns on thought leadership activity. It's something that long been debated and a lot of senior people saying, oh, no, you can't measure thought leadership. It's something that I've championed over the years. Of course, you can measure thought leadership because it interacts with so many different of your interactions, whether that's internal engagement, as we said, whether it's knowledge sharing and making sure that your people are armed with the right tools and insights, whether it's leading to client conversations or potential client conversations. And if you're keeping track of all of that and you're looking at how the thought leadership activity that you're doing is really driving those conversations or driving that activity, then that's a really good way of quantifying it. But you've actually taken it a step further and come up with some mathematical ways of being able to calculate your return on thought leadership investment. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? 
I can. Yeah, we're super proud that from what we can tell the for the very first time, we've calculated a credible, reliable thought leadership ROI that's anchored in research and derived from data. And that's really important to us. So, and that's been kind of the challenge before. And I think you mentioned a bit ago when organizations try to calculate thought leadership ROI, they start with the I and they try to figure out what the return is on the I. What we did is we looked at our data and started with the R and looked at the return and then backed into what that meant for the investment. So from what we can tell, it's the first time that there's a calculation that's not based on suppositions or expectations or metrics that were borrowed from other marketing methods. It's just great for my background as a CMO. I wish I had had this number that justifies the significant investment in thought leadership because I think of it and I promote it as the foundation of pretty much every effective marketing mix. And the the drum roll is that the average ROI is about 156% for a thought leadership investment. Now, obviously that ROI can fluctuate based on specific organization attributes, things like the geography, the size, the industry. And it also varies somewhat significantly based on the specific levers of value that impact an organization's thought leadership return, things like independence and trustworthiness. But these are real numbers and they're based on real data. So Essentially, what we did to make the calculation was we captured the direct and influenced spend from consuming organizations. So the return, right? What leaders are spending as a result of thought leadership. We factored in mindshare and a few other elements based on the research on what they told us. And then we applied a net profit number and calculated the return. So again, it's all based on data from our survey and it's real numbers. And we have a methodology, we have a calculator so that people will be able to determine their own organization's ROI by plugging in their own numbers. And all of that is going to be outlined in a forthcoming book that we expect that will be available early next year. And one of the most um, exciting things about the calculation was we realized that the return for thought leadership investment is about 16 times higher than returns from traditional marketing campaigns. And that's based on benchmarks that we could find. So I don't know how accurate marketing ROI has been over time, but what we could find was that this is about 16 times higher than than a typical marketing mix. So we're really excited about it. We've talked about it in a few places and our colleagues are really excited about it and we can't wait to get it out there. That's fantastic. I think having that data and uh, methodology back points that you can actually hold up and say, well, I can demonstrate it. This is the return. We're taking it from that again, very commercial perspective. But, you know, as you mentioned, the average ROI, 156%, pretty impressive. And also when you compare it with against uh, traditional marketing campaigns or marketing mix and metrics, again, it says it all, really. I would have really loved to have a tool like that when I was in financial services marketing to be able to justify thought leadership activity. I'm sure a lot of people will find that incredibly valuable. And also it's it's encouraging from a thought leadership perspective to see that we found from our own research that organizations that are investing in it, thought leadership and doing it properly are reaping the commercial benefits. They're tracking it through various different means. And indeed, we have a tool that, that tracks where thought leadership is providing return on investment across various different metrics, whether that's reputation, recognition, revenue, etc. 
And to be able to quantify it and to be able to go to the CEO and and say, okay, well, I need more budget now because we've just proved that this has worked or give me the same budget and I'll show you what the return is. Incredibly powerful and something that I think will stop some of the thought leadership eye rolls that you (laughs) you see quite often. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's the hope, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're really keen to obviously work once the book is published to share that and make more information available when, as and when, but we'll definitely be keeping a close eye on that. And thank you for sharing with us on this discussion today. Yeah, happy to. I think despite turbulent times economically, geopolitical pressures, there's a lot going on. There's concerns around uh, around AI and impact on organisations on particular roles. In the face of all of this, thought leadership is driving commercial success. I think we've both got a lot of data that backs that up and I had a lot of conversations with business leaders that is all pointing in that direction. So I think that's incredibly encouraging when it comes to demonstrating the power of thought leadership, looking at the cultural power of thought leadership, as we've talked about impetus for for action on diversity, equity and inclusion, on better quality with women in leadership and all these different areas where it can improve internal measures, processes, ways of, of working. So I think we've got a lot to be thankful for when it comes to thought leadership and what it's offering to businesses. And I think you mentioned earlier, Cindy, that we're actually doing a lot of good stuff for our business leaders and it's coming across through the thought leadership activity. So I find that really heartening, actually. Are there other significant trends that you're seeing when it comes to thought leadership in these turbulent times and perhaps some particular insights that you can share there? Yeah, I think we've talked a bit about it, but I really think in the near future, the only sort of trend is really going to be how to deal with generative AI. And as I said, we've talked a lot about it. I think a lot of smaller producers, I think, are really jumping in with both feet. They're grabbing the productivity. They're sort of heading into the deep water, not recognizing there might be fish there with sharp teeth. And what I really mean by that is Many of these, we're all familiar with chat GPT, right? A hundred million people in two months signed up to use it. The large language models like that have been trained on content that's largely scraped from the web and other places that we don't really know about because what we call the provenance of data, the history, where it came from is really unclear. And what that means is these models were very likely trained on at least some content that's copyrighted by somebody, right? And that means somebody's going to want to get paid for that content. So in fact, just yesterday, I saw that a group of 9,000 authors, some pretty famous uh, names, sent a letter to some tech companies demanding compensation for the use of their content in the training of models. So that same thing is already happening, right, with artists and musicians. So what does that mean for thought leadership producers who create content and try to improve productivity and use it to generate kind of speed and so forth? We just don't know. But we should be cautious because if that turns into something and we know it's a big deal, copyrights are important and it's not going to be solved anytime quickly, but we should definitely, and this is, I encourage my team, we talked about it as well, to kind of play around and experiment. When some of this hype dies down and when we get to the real business value, some of the early adopters have faded away, some of the legal stuff has been sorted out. We know how to use it. We know how to use generative AI to improve our own productivity and speed our content creation and deliver better outputs and enhance our unique value propositions. And I just think that's going to be 
kind of the common refrain, probably ad nauseum, at least the rest of this year and probably into next. That's really the only thing we're hearing about from a kind of a trends perspective, honestly. Yeah, I think it's a big enough one to <laughs> to be going on with and to be focusing on. And you raised incredibly important point in terms of provenance of data, of insight and content and being able to reference that check the accuracy of sources and also not infringe anybody's copyright or IP. That's going to be a major challenge. But if we look at how AI can, as you say, complement other activity, whether it's complementing research that's being done through other means, whether it's it's complementing uh, content that's being created, as long as you can accurately reference and attribute sources and be very mindful of other people's content. But it's being able to firstly knowing that in the first place and acknowledging it and then actually making a policy and building a framework of how you use it around that to make sure that that you're mitigating the risk as much as possible. And again, that comes back to the misinformation conversation that's sort of being able to identify misinformation, fact check thoroughly still going to be a very great need for careful editing and editorial services and an approach to thought leadership and the content that's being created. So it's uh, another area that teams are, are going to have to be very aware of and build into their processes. Yes, absolutely. So I think we're just coming up to time. I think we've covered a lot of really key trends for thought leadership, which has been fantastic. And thank you so much for sharing the data points and insights from your recent research and report. I'm sure our listeners will find that incredibly useful. My pleasure. Would you be able to just leave me with your three key takeaways that you would like our our listeners to bear in mind and around thought leadership and where we see it going? I can. All righty. First thing I would say, and I, I do say, to organizations when I speak about this is find and leverage your superpower, your thought leadership superpower. So whether it's your data, whether it's a particular point of view, as you said, in an industry or a sector, if it's a unique writing or delivery style, everybody's going to need something that differentiates them and their thought leadership from others, especially as it gets easier and easier to copy things. So um, that superpower and unique value proposition, whatever you want to call it, you have to find it and leverage it to your advantage and to the advantage of your organization. So that's number one. Number two is don't be afraid of the technology, this or any other technology. Grab onto it, experiment with it, be cautious, but be ready to figure out how you're going to use it to make you better at what you do, how to enhance that superpower. We say a lot that AI isn't going to replace people, but people who use AI are going to replace people who don't. So figure it out on your own, get your teams to figure it out. Again, cautiously go with guardrails, but you got to experiment. You got to be ready for when some of the, like I said, some of the hype dies down. So that's number two. And number three is you got to calculate your ROI. There just is going to be no choice moving forward, but to demonstrate the value that thought leadership delivers in business value terms, right? We're just not going to have a choice saying, well, we think it's helping because we're seeing some of the indicators that the days of of being able to do that are over with the availability of data and measurements and and metrics. So get familiar with the numbers, however you use it, whether you use our calculation or some other, there's going to have to be some way for you to prove the value of the work that, that you do and that we all do. So those would be my three takeaways. And Rachel, it's really been a pleasure talking with you. I hope we can do it again. Thank you, Cindy. I so appreciate that. And I absolutely love it. 
identify and harness your thought leadership superpower. I think the three points that you mentioned are, are all music to my ears and the three key areas that we're always banging the drum for. So I hope everyone takes that to heart and can really take something from that as well. And thank you again for sharing your fascinating insight and for joining me today. Thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and hope we can do it again soon on some other topics. My pleasure, Rachel. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Cindy. Take care. Bye now. Bye.